in the Roman Eastern and Anglo-Catholic churches, the laying on of hands is practiced in the sacramental rites of holy orders and confirmation. Uh, by the sacramental uh, rite of uh, holy orders, a Christian is made a deacon, priest, or bishop. And this comes through the imposition of hands uh, by a bishop or bishops in tactile apostolic succession. In the sacrament of confirmation, the baptismal grace conferred in baptism is made complete or strengthened uh, through the imposition of hands by a bishop in manual tactile uh, apostolic succession. Both of these pr uh, practices have biblical precedent, and so uh, I'm not against them per se. Uh, what I am against is the idea that the benefits of these rites are exclusively administered by the Roman Church, uh, Eastern Churches, and Anglo-Catholics. Paul says the doctrine of laying on of hands is an elementary principle, and yet I don't think it is fully appreciated in some evangelical circles. It certainly is appreciated in charismatic circles, um, but that's more in the giving of the Holy Spirit, uh, and that has to do with con um, confirmation. We're going to be talking about ordination today. If the church body has a kind of anti-sacramental character, the laying on of hands seems to me to be diminished in significance. They may do it um, uh, just kind of a, out of uh, ritual identification, and that's fine. That's good that they continue to do it, but there's not, uh, it's not an elementary principle that is, that is in the minds of people. Uh, but in Roman and Eastern churches, it certainly is very important, and um, the laying out of hands uh, by their bishops is exalted to such an extent that I think it crowds out um, other elementary doctrines and then more important and mature uh, doctrines. Paul says in Hebrews 6, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So let us examine what God uh, has instructed us in the Bible what he has shown us uh, about the laying out of hands. Sacrifice. The Bible uses laying on of hands language most often to convey some kind of violence uh, or harm on whoever or, or whatever is having their hands placed on them. There's a whole range of things that laying on of hands can mean, but I think this is one of the foundational things. For example, in Esther we read, uh, then King uh, Asuras said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. Esther 8-7. Haman wanted a genocide against the Jews in, in Esther 3-5-6. We're told this. So laying out of hands here meant violence, uh, or we could say sacrifice, uh, of the Jews. In this sense, it was an unlawful sacrifice, uh, unlawful violence. This is how I take the general meaning of the phrase that it's most often associated with violence. There's a sacrificial nature to it. Nehemiah, uh, this is more of the kind of harmful aspect of it. Nehemiah threatens mer merchants who were breaking the Sabbath with violence and uses the phrase, I will lay my hands on you. The Lord says he will lay his hands on Egypt, which included the death of their firstborn children and the death of the Egyptian army, Exodus 7-4. God tells Abraham not to lay his hands on Isaac, meaning don't sacrifice him, Genesis 22-12. Reuben tells his brothers not to lay a hand on Joseph, meaning don't kill him, Genesis 37-22. 
So the Bible shows us that the laying on of hands was used in um, uh, was also used in the sacrificial rites of worship. Uh, we we see this already in Genesis 22. Don't lay your hands on Isaac. This Christological sacrifice, uh, it, and the angel interfered and, and said, "Don't do this." So um, I believe we're invited to see the connection between this lawful ritualized sacrificial laying on of hands that we're going to go through and other forms of laying on of hands, whether they be lawful or not, that there's this sacrificial element in it. In Leviticus, animals are sacrificed to God for various reasons, various sins, uh, and for various people. And um, in uh, Leviticus 16, we have the laying on of hands by the priest. In the Day of Atonement, we see Aaron laying hands on the scapegoat. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness. So the goat wasn't a blood sacrifice, but it was this exilic sacrifice. And we see the shadow of substitutionary atonement. The sins of the people are imputed to the scapegoat. We see animal sacrifices along with the laying on of hands for unintentional corporate sins. In Leviticus 4... The elders, not the priest, lay their hands on the sacrificial bull. Now, if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they have done something against any of the commandments of the Lord, and anything which should not be done, and are guilty, when the sin which they have committed becomes known, then the assembly shall offer a young bull for the sin, and bring it before the tabernacle of meeting. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord. Then the bull shall be killed before the Lord, Leviticus 4, 13-15. We also see, so we have priests, we have the elders, and then we also have the people, the laity, acting in this priestly role, laying their hands on uh, animal sacrifices. This is Leviticus 4 as well. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally by doing something against any of the co commandments of the Lord in anything which ought not to be done and is guilty, or if his sin which he has committed comes to his knowledge, then he shall bring as his offering a kid of the goats, a female without blemish for his sin which he has committed, and he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering at the place of the burnt offering. So he lays his hand and he, and he kills it. And then the priest comes in as this kind of mediatorial application of, of this uh, atonement blood. Then the priest shall take some of uh, its blood with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering, and pour all the remaining blood at the base of the altar. He shall remove all its fat, as fat is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offering. And the priest shall burn it on the altar for a sweet aroma to the Lord. So the priest shall make atonement for him, and it shall be forgiven him. So again, the forgiveness of sins imputation of sins to a, a sacrifice. Uh, continue, um, continuing. If he brings a lamb as his sin offering, he shall bring a female without blemish. Then he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill it as a sin offering at the place where they kill the burnt offering. And then it goes on to show us the priest applying this blood in these kind of ritualized ways. The Levites also lay their hands on sin offerings as atonement for the Levitical sins. In Numbers 8, we're told, Then the Levites shall lay their hands on the heads of the young bulls, and you shall offer one as a sin offering, and the other as a burnt offering to the Lord to make atonement for the Levites. 
I believe that all of these ritual sacrificial laying on of hands are shadows of Christ. It's little fragments of what we see with Christ sacrificing himself for us. Uh, we see that this language is used when the elders and the chief priest of Jesus's day come and seize him for his sacrifice. They laid their hands on the Lamb of God. In Matthew 26, 50, Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. Mark 14, 46, Then they laid their hands on him and took him. So Christ is our sacrificial Lamb of God. It all culminates in that, and I think that's the fundamental thing. So there's this element of dedication to sacrifice that the laying on of hands uh, uh, shows us, and there's this imputation of sin as well. And I think this is really the fundamental meaning of the phrase and of the ritual, especially of ordination, that it ultimately points to the laying on of hands of the Lamb of God who was sacrificed for our sins, and that those who are appointed as under-shepherds of the great shepherd, they have hands placed on them to signify their willingness to sacrifice themselves for the people of God like Christ did. In some ways, they take the burdens of the people on themselves. Uh, I don't want to elaborate on this too much, but I think we're invited to see this kind of connection. Their elders are supposed to be like mini-Christ, and they, of course, point to the Christ. But there's all kinds of ways that we imitate Christ. I think that our elders, uh, by the laying on of hands, are to show us, it's to show this kind of ritual, um, sacrificial aspect. All right, so we see that the laying out of hands also has the um, authority. It, it, it transfers the authority to rule and minister in the Old Covenant. So there, there's this investment of authority that we see in the Old Testament. And so in this sense, I would agree with Rome in the East, and really most Christians practice this. They, they, they practice this in some way. And we're kind of basically all in agreement uh, to an extent, except when it comes to the particulars of Rome in the East. But interesting, interestingly enough, we see that it is the people who are the ones who place their hands on the Levites in their ordination. It's almost this kind of congregational appointment. You shall bring, this is from Numbers 8, you shall bring the Levites before the Lord, and the children of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites, and Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord like a wave offering from the children of Israel, that they may perform the work of the Lord. So the people laying their hands on, and then there's also the chief priest there who then offers them up to the Lord. Moses ordains Joshua as his successor, and in the laying on of hands, he gives him authority. Uh, notice that Joshua already has the spirit. Uh, he doesn't receive the spirit from Moses, which we will get into with uh, confirmation, but he does receive authority. So there's this kind of ordination that's going on here. This is from Numbers 27. Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation who may go out before them and go in before them, who may lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, with you, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. So we see that Joshua is being compared to a pastor here. We don't want sheep without a shepherd. And there's the laying on of hands. And he already has the Spirit. Set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation and inaugurate him in their sight. And you shall give some of your authority to him 
that all the congregation of, Israel, uh, of the children of Israel may be obedient. He shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire before the Lord for him by the judgment of the Urim. At his word they shall go out, so there's discernment, seeking the Lord and in, in, in discerning if we should appoint this man. And his wor- uh, at, this, at his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in. He and all the children of Israel with him, all the congregation. So Moses did as the Lord commanded. He took Joshua and sent him, and set him before Eleazar the priest and before the congregation, and he laid his hands on him and inaugurated him, inaugurated him just as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses. Uh, we also see that there's real blessings conferred when Jacob lays his hands on Ephraim and Manasseh. Um, Joseph's sons uh, by, by placing his hands on him. Then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel will bless, by you, Israel will bless, saying, May God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And thus he set Ephraim before Manasseh, Genesis 22, 14 and 20. So while this isn't necessarily an ordination, um, there is, like Joshua and Moses or the Levites, it does show that something real is being transferred or bestowed via the laying on of hands. We also see this continued in the New Covenant, that there is authority to rule and minister in the New Covenant and that the laying on of hands is part of that. While the resurrected Christ doesn't lay his hands on the apostles, he does commission the apostles in breathing on them in order to receive the Spirit in John 20. Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Verses 21 through 23. Uh, This is one of the foundational proof texts for Uh, Christ conferring authority to the apostles, who in turn then confer their authority to others. We could say, just as the Father sent the Son, so Christ sends the apostles. And just as Christ sends the apostles, so the apostles send ministers. Um, Or as Rome in the East and Anglo-Catholics would say, just as Christ established apostles, so the apostles established bishops. And there's certainly a lot of validity into this pattern that we see in the New Testament and then how it plays out in history. So that, that is certainly a point for Rome and, and the East and Anglo-Catholics. Acts 6, 2-6 says this, Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to ministry of the word, And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, uh, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. So we see the apostles, it appears, uh, if it is the apostles, which I think that that's who it is, they lay their hand as opposed to the people. They lay their hands on these men. They ordained them similarly to how Joshua was ordained. The Levites were ordained. The congregation is involved. They, they choose the men. They bring them to the apostles. Uh, it's generally accepted that these were deacons. Um, that's the historic position. But some have argued that these men were elders. The text doesn't say one way or the other, but their function is more in accordance with deacons, uh, and uh, that's probably what it is. 
In Acts 13, 1 through 4, hands are laid on Barnabas and Saul, um, or Paul, and they are sent out. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So there's a few things to note here. Paul is called Saul even after his conversion. It's a common misconception that he has this name change. Saul is just his Hebrew name and Paul is his Greek name, his Roman name. Uh, but most significantly, the ones laying their hands on these apostles, we're told, are, are just certain prophets and teachers. They weren't the 12 apostles. Uh, they didn't have their hands laid on them by apostles. They had their hands laid on them by what appears to be simply laity who had the giftings of prophecy and teaching. Barnabas, this is an interesting thing, uh, Barnabas, we are told, is a Levite in Acts 4.36, so we might see something of a new covenant fulfillment of the Levitical role here. Uh, similar to Numbers 8, 10-11, uh, the children of true Israel, Christians, lay their hands on a Levite and they dedicate him uh, to the Lord's purposes. Barnabas, we're told, sold his land and gave the money to the apostles in Acts 4, 36 to 37. So this could be an echo of the Levites not having a land inheritance, but having God as uh, himself as their inheritance in Numbers 18. But what is most pertinent to our purposes to note, which I've already said, is that the imposition of hands and their sending out of Paul the Apostle and Barnabas is done by prophets and teachers, not by apostles or at least we're not told this, and they have the backing of the Holy Spirit. Something certainly more messy than the neat line of apostolic succession uh, that is espoused by Rome in the East. Apostles are made here by what appears to essentially be the laity laying their hands on them and being obedient to what the Holy Spirit has said to them. Later in Acts 14, we see that Paul and Barnabas are then referred to as apostles in verse 14, and they appoint elders in the churches of Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So Luke doesn't mention the laying on of hands here, though I would say it's reasonable to assume that they did lay their hands on them. But they did appoint elders in these cities. And I bring this up because we see this pattern throughout the New Testament, that the apostles did appoint elders in churches of various cities who in turn appointed other men. Uh, they appointed men like Timothy and Titus, and they are instructed to appoint other men. So there is something of apostolic succession going on here. Paul says to Titus, I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you, Titus 1.5. We aren't told that Paul laid his hands on Titus, but again, I bring it up to show this pattern of apostles appointing men. Jesus sends the apostles, the apostles send other men. And they carry on their work. And historically, these men have been viewed as uh, carrying on the ministry of the apostles in a sense. That they, they, they have the mantle of the apostles. 
But taking into consideration the way that Paul was sent by certain prophets and teachers certainly complicates the neat line of succession uh, espoused by um, Rome in the East, as we said. Further complicating the issue is that Jesus sends disciples out to Israel, it appears, in the same way as the apostles in Luke 10. Um, they are sent ones. Uh, these 70 or 72 sent ones uh, are etymologically linked to being apostles because that's just what apostle means. It's a sent one. And the, the Eastern tradition does refer to these men as apostles. Um, so that kind of complicates things as well. You have a whole bunch of apostles uh, out there. Paul mentions that Timothy had hands laid on him, suggesting his ordination came through Paul and the elders. In 1 Timothy 4.14, he says, Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of hands of the eldership. We aren't specifically told what the gift that is in him is, but I think we can gather from the larger context of the letter that it is the gift of ordination, the responsibility given to him to be a minister of the gospel and steward of the mysteries of the faith. Of note here is that Paul mentions the laying on of hands by the elders. He doesn't even mention him, although he could be included in that. Peter does refer to himself as an elder. 2 Timothy 1.6, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So here Paul reminds Timothy of the gift of God, presumably the same gift mentioned in the previous letter, and mentions that it came to him through the laying on of Paul's hands. And so the laying on of hands bestowed some real gift to him. Um, so this is certainly a strong statement in favor of uh, the strict apostolic succession view. 1 Timothy 5.22, he instructs Timothy, he says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor uh, take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. So Timothy, having had hands laid on him, now has the authority to lay hands on others uh, and to make them elders, presumably. This comes in a passage where Paul is instructing Timothy and in how to honor elders uh, who rule well, how to deal with elders who are sinning. Uh, he then adds not to be hasty in the laying on of hands, which suggests that Timothy ought to be patient in discerning in who to ordain as an elder, exercising that Eleazar discernment through the Urim. But now we have the Holy Spirit, which gives us that discernment. We don't consult this an, an Urim. Um, because in ordaining a sinful elder, Timothy would be partaking in that sin. Paul says to keep yourself pure. And I love my Roman and Eastern brothers, but this is something that your churches notoriously violate regularly. Um, that you lay your hands hastily. Even though they go through a long period of seminary, you have men who are sinners and um, you bring them in as elders, and so you're partaking in their sins. And Protestant churches do this as well, um, so it's not something that's particular to Romanese. Lastly, and this is the most important thing, in Paul's instruction for the appointment of elders, he doesn't stress the laying on of hands by the apostles. It's not a huge concern for him. It happened, um, happened with Timothy at least, but his main concern is holiness. When he talks about the qualifications of elders, holiness of life is his primary emphasis. While the laying on of hands uh, is expected in the rite of ordination and I think does confer some kind of authority, uh, Paul's concern is more emphatically on the holiness of life and the purity of doctrine rather than historical 
pedigree. So our non-Roman and non-Eastern and, and uh, uh, non-Anglo-Catholic -Anglo churches, are they valid? Do they have valid sacraments? The biblical witness, to my mind, is not strong enough to confidently assert that valid ordination comes exclusively from Rome, the East, or certain other Anglo-Catholic bodies that, um, by most accounts, have uh, bishops in um, tactile succession to the apostles. The biblical account is not emphatic enough or clear enough to invalidate uh, such a large portion of the church uh, that is so manifestly filled with faithful followers of Christ when considering the weightier matters of the law, the fruits of the Spirit, sobriety and doctrine, etc. There's so many other things to take into consideration and to boil it down to simply um, apostolic tactile succession, I think, is not in accord with the, uh, the regulation of faith that we see in, in Scripture. However, I do think the doctrine of apostolic succession um, in these churches does have biblical warrant to it. There is, it does sync up nicely with what we see with the laying on of hands in Scripture. Um, and we also see this played out through history, and we'll discuss that later. Um, so I, I can't think that it's totally okay to just have carte blanche to mock this idea. I think that there is something about it that I'm not willing to totally let go of. On the other hand, I believe that churches that have elders appointed uh, by the people through the laying on of hands is valid. Um, we could say that as um, because the people are priests. The, the people are priests themselves. If you're grafted together with Christ in baptism, then you are now a partaker in that Melchizedekian priesthood. And uh, we can talk about all that another time, but that is absolutely how I understand baptism and our, our union with Christ, that everything that is Christ is, is conferred to us. Um, so in that sense, all Christians through baptism do have apostolic succession. There is union, union with Christ, and there is, there is a sacramental succession that goes all the way back to the apostles in, in that sense. We might say that um, uh, the New Covenant, in, in more of a Protestant or even congregational context, we could say that the New Covenant children of Israel, a Christian congregation, bring a New Covenant Levite, an elder, before their high priest, who is Christ, and ordain him like the Old Covenant children of Israel did before Aaron. I believe that the biblical witness along with the historical witness does support the idea that the regular mode of ordination would come through presbyters or bishops, and that ideally, perhaps, tentative, tentatively, one could trace the ordination back to the apostles uh, through the bishops or presbyters. Now, this, at the very least, if, we, if, if you were to do that, it, it provides a helpful statement about our connection to the past and a reflection of what we see demonstrated in scriptures through the laying on of hands. It supplements this idea. And uh, notice I said either presbyters or bishops because the distinction is artificial. Um, and I've seen people go through great lengths to try to maintain that distinction, but I just don't think it's there. Jerome and Chrysostom, they both say that Presbyters and bishops used to be the same thing, and that it's just a, 
It's a hu it's of human origin and an application of a divine principle. Um, though I, I, I would acknowledge that the historic episcopate, it can be beneficial. We're allowed to do this. Um, it, it's been the regular practice of the church throughout most of her history. Uh, what we've done now for the past 500 years in Protestant churches, uh, accepting Anglicans and some Lutherans, uh, like in Sweden, is, is a deviation from what we saw for 1,500 years, which I don't think is something to scoff at or to think is trivial. And if a church wants to reserve the right of ordination to the bishop, they are permitted to do that as long as they recognize that this governing choice is, is of human origin in its application that derives from divinely uh, originating principles. Um, in that of elders ordaining elders. And every church makes these kinds of human applications. They take what they know from Scripture as best they can, but there's always a human administrative element to it. And even in the lowest non-denominational church, you'll have a senior pastor and an assistant pastor. Well, that's not in Scripture, but we're permitted to do these kinds of things. If it's not contrary to scripture and it's beneficial for the good order of the church, um, it's okay. I think God is pleased with that. Uh, I think, And I think God gives us a lot of room for adapting to our cultural and political environments and, and things like this. I say this tentatively, but I think possibly an ideal, ideal situation would be a church where apostolic succession of faith and morals is paired with apostolic manual tactile ordination. Um, that a future faithful church that is laboring towards unity um, could seek this out and it would give this apologetic, I guess, ammo, which would say, we have union with the past. We have um, uh, precedent in scripture for the laying on of hands. It provides this connection to antiquity all reaching all the way back into scripture to uh, a representative of the church um, in the present day. There is a certain kind of apologetic pull to it that I think is not contrary to scripture, except for the fact that it would, except for the exclusivity that Rome and East and, and um, others make. Um, so those coming, if we, if we, if the future church is more unified, which Jesus prays, our high priest prays that we be unified, um, those coming from a Protestant tradition, they might consider ordination into apostolic succession as a concession to the weaker brothers who have such a high view of it. And we could liken ourselves to Paul, who went through Jewish uh, rites to demonstrate a solidarity with his brother Jews. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9.20, Acts 16.13, Acts 18.18, Acts 21.23-26. Um, Paul becomes a Jew to the Jews and a Gentile to the Gentiles uh, so that he could win as many people as possible. And I think we could probably analogously apply this to the situation. But I can also envision a situation where the wise thing to do would be to resist ordination if it wasn't understood that we firmly believe that there's valid ordinations outside of apostolic succession. It might be the right thing to resist it. Um, but I throw these out as considerations for a future church that uh, we might not see for hundreds of years. Um, 
Here's another analog that I think might be helpful for Protestants, um, giving a charitable understanding if there is some kind of truth to apostolic succession and the imposition of hands that they've retained. And that's Paul's description of Israel after the flesh. He says that Israel after the flesh, the Jews that rejected Jesus, the ones that are just carnally connected to Abraham, they retain some kind of elect status while still being enemies of the gospel. Paul says in Romans 11, Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. In some translations, it say the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. I don't think that is saying salvation is without repentance. It's saying that God does bestow gifts to people in this covenantal manner, which are not revoked even when they are unfaithful. So similarly, I wouldn't say that Rome and the East and Anglo-Catholics are enemies of the gospel. I do believe they preach the gospel and that their unfaithfulness is commensurate with Protestant unfaithfulness. There, there's not a whole lot of difference. I would say uh, there is probably more faithfulness in Protestant churches, um, but the analog, I think, stands. We could say that uh, Rome and the East and Anglo-Catholics concerning the gospel or concerning aspects of uh, uh, the Catholicity of the church, the unity of the church that Paul and Jesus uh, talk about are enemies for your sake because they're so exclusive in these doctrines that don't have a whole lot of support. But concerning the gift of apostolic succession, they are beloved for the sake of the apostles. It's a very charitable way of doing it, but it, it does create a category in my mind where it's like, it could be, could be something there, but it's also possible to retain giftings and to forfeit um, God's favor, just like, uh, or, or to forfeit salvation, at least, um, just like the Jews have. And so uh, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable, but the call to repentance still lays on the Jews who have rejected Christ, um, and it would still lay on the papists and Eastern Orthodox and Anglo-Catholics, uh, to repent of whatever aberrant doctrines they have. And as far as I'm concerned, the main ones are divorce and remarriage. Um, though they still might, just like the Jews, they still might have some kind of irrevocable gifting, and perhaps they will be grafted back in more fully to where the Spirit of God has been in the church, which I do believe has been in, in more Protestant circles. Perhaps all of this is entirely too charitable, and there is nothing significant at all about apostolic succession. But I have a hard time believing that. I, 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 there's just a string there that it's like, there might be something there. But I have an even harder time uh, believing that those who do not have apostolic tactile ordination, but do have apostolic faith, are somehow inferior or invalid and I, I don't believe that at all. In fact, I think the apostolic f faith makes them more valid than the ones who have given up the faith but have the tactile succession. I would say Rome and the East are absolutely wrong in this kind of we're valid, you're not uh, mindset. And I would also, but I would commend Anglo-Catholics. I'm sure there's liberal Roman Catholics who are, are sound like this too, but the Anglo-Catholics have most of them, or at least some of them I have heard, they have refrained from making pronouncements about the validity of orders outside of apostolic succession. Um, 
more making a positive affirmation. We know that this is how God has ordered the church. We don't know if God is outside of, is in these irregular modes of ordination and sacraments. Um, so they, so they're more cautious to unchurch the rest of the church, which I would say that's a good instinct. It still doesn't go far enough, but it's a better instinct than some like really hardcore traditionalist Roman or Eastern Orthodox are probably the most psychopath exclusivists that are out there. Um, and to give Anglicans their due, some of the greatest arguments and some of the most careful dismantling of apostolic succession has come from evangelical Anglicans and particularly uh, an evangelical bishop uh, named Colin Buchanan. Um, there are some really good e evangelical Anglicans out there, and I think th there's just a there's a glory in that section of the church. Um, and anyway, Colin Buchanan, um, who's a retired bishop now, I think he's like 83 or something, he writes in The Churchman, which is this evangelical Anglican uh, journal. He says this about apostolic succession. Here is the heart of the matter. Catholicity springs not from above, from a universal bishop or a Diesian bishop. It is the privilege of every man regenerated in Christ. That makes my heart sing. And then he quotes um, Article 19 of the 39 Articles, which are a very reformed and evangelical document, one of the founding documents of the Anglican Church after the Reformation. And it says this, the visible church of Christ is a congregation of faithful men in which the pure word of God is preached and the sacraments be duly administered according to Christ's ordinance. There's just a beautiful simplicity in that. I could sign off on that. I think that that's wonderful. And he goes on, where there is no faith, there is no church. No congregation, no church. No word of God, no church. No sacraments, no church. The unit of the visible church is not the diocese, but the congregation. The test of it, not the bishop, but the faith, doctrine, and practice of the local congregation. We do well to note the words of Pilkington. I don't know who that is. Succession of good bishops is a great blessing of God. But because God and his truth hangs not on man nor place, we rather hang on the undeceivable truth of God's word in all doubts than on any bishop's place or man. He goes on. The Anglican position is the reformed one, that the scriptures are perspicuous and contain all things necessary to salvation. That's uh, from uh, the Church of England in an Apostolic Succession uh, in the Churchman Journal, volume 75 from 1961. So I heartily affirm I heartily affirm this. Uh, this is where our priority uh, is, ought to lie. And um, I, am, I am with Protestants who prioritize Abrahamic faith as the mark and creation of a true church. Jesus says, wherever two or three are gathered together in his name, there he is with them. This is the essence of the true church. But these lesser issues concerning ordination, I think, must be taken seriously as we see them demonstrated in Scripture, we have precedent for the laying on of hands being significant and conferring real authority. And we see this played out in the history of the church. Though this idea of apostolic succession really didn't start to get um, 
we do see it with the early fathers, but they're arguing it for different reasons. That the ends for which they are trying to argue it are are different, I think, in their mode than say the the Tractarians of the nineteenth century, um, and that is really when it started. So it's kind of a new concern, really, in a lot of ways. Um, so anyway. Uh, these are my tentative thoughts on the issue, and I, I welcome thoughtful feedback from others who have considered this biblical and ancient practice deeply. Christ.